Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to the newest episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up in today's show, the UK's quarantine list just got longer again, causing chaos as passengers scrambled to get home. I'll talk about what the UAE-Israel peace deal will mean for aviation, and Joe will take a look at which masks are best for flying right now. Tom will give us some insight into the final destination of Lufthansa's first Airbus A320. And finally, I'll tell you about the flight from Japan to almost anywhere in the world that costs just $60. So now you know what we've got in store today, let's get on with the show. And I believe you wanted to start as usual today, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I will, Tom. Um, so for people that follow Simple Flying or perhaps even live in the UK, um, they'll be acutely aware of the very frustrating, ever-changing quarantine situation. So um, back, I think it was uh, towards the end of June, we implemented, or the UK government implemented, a blanket quarantine, which was widely regarded as being too little, too late, and was met with much complaint from the aviation and travel industries. Um, so they scrapped that in early July for, for a number of places, most places in Europe and, and some other more exotic destinations as well, um, forming what they call travel corridors. Um, but since then, <laughs> things have been rapidly getting added back onto the list of places that if you go there, you've got to quarantine for two weeks when you come back. So Spain was added in uh, towards the end of July, and it, that was done with just four hours' notice. So people that were on their jollies in Spain um, literally had no opportunity at all to get back to the UK uh, before the quarantine notice hit. Um, and with it being a midnight deadline as well, it was kind of it, it was almost like watching a horse race, <laughs> seeing some of these flights returning back to the UK, and you know some that were due in at eleven. 55 actually arrived at kind of 10 past midnight and some that were due after midnight got ahead of themselves and arrived before and you know it seemed crazy that people could land within five minutes of each other and one plane load would have to quarantine for two weeks and the other one wouldn't but that was that was the end of July and then last week or the first week in August um, Belgium, Andorra, the Bahamas were added back on and last week we saw France added um, and that was along with the Netherlands, Monaco, Malta, Turks and Caicos and Aruba. Um, and of course, the issue now is that we're looking at the school return in the beginning of September. So it's kind of a more um, pressing issue for people that they're back because you, in England, we have to send our kids to school. You know, there's a, a big fine situation ongoing if you don't send your children to school. So um, I, I don't know whether people would be able to get exemptions from that if they couldn't go. But when this, anyway, when this quarantine requirement came in for France, they estimated there were 160,000 Brits on holiday in France. You know, that's a lot of people who are then faced with not only taking their week's holiday, but also another two weeks off work when they get home and children potentially missing the start of the new school term, which is not ideal. Not ideal, um, but I feel like it's a good way to protest the quarantine regulations. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can't see how they can uphold fining the parents well, for not can't. sending the kids to I mean, school when, uh, you know, when the, takes, the government's saying you can't. <laughs> yeah, public health obviously takes priority over um, education, I believe. Well, I would assume so in the current situation, yeah, absolutely. Usually, maybe, but definitely <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, I'm just worried that they're going to do it for um, Germany because I want to plan to come back to the UK and it's just like, oh, do I, Aww. don't I? 
Yeah, it's a very fluid situation. Mm. And they did it a bit differently this time because yeah. uh, there were so many complaints when they did Spain with a four-hour window. They actually told us um, it was like really late on Thursday night, sort of nearly midnight on Thursday night that the announcement was made. And um, the quarantine was due to be brought in at 4am on Saturday. So that gave people just over 24 hours to find a way to get home if they really needed to. As you can imagine, <laughs> with probably at least half of those 160,000 rushing to get home, it was absolute chaos. Um, the Channel Tunnel had completely sold out of tickets pretty much by about nine o'clock on Friday morning. And, you know, they were putting out all sorts of warnings saying, do not just turn up because there won't be a, a place on the train for you. Well, there won't be a place on the tunnel there won't be a space on the ferry and the price of flights went mental i mean um, i was quite surprised because i was looking on um friday morning just out of interest and i did find a whaling flight from paris orly to one of the london airports for under 100 euros per person but it was already like 10 30 when i looked and this thing left at 12 so you'd have to really be on it to get on there <laughs> oh yeah you'd have to be at the airport gate yeah. wouldn't you basically so yeah it was chaos and i mean i think the worst affected places were definitely those south of france destinations which hmm. only tend to have sort of one or two flights a day and you know or they'd sold out and the well yes and, yeah. and the remaining flights you know we saw some flights that were as much as 500 quid for a one-way ticket hmm. which is just insane i mean so I do give them credit for doing it at 4am this time, though, because um, yeah. like you said, that kind of avoids the problem of, oh, we landed two minutes after midnight, whereas this plane yeah. this plane landed before us, but got to the gate after us. But yeah. So they're going to go through border <laughs> control after us. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit crazy. And I think that that was a good decision, definitely, because there's no flights landing at that time in the morning. So it's, it's a more clear kind of cut thing. You, you're either going to be home in time or you're not. There's no kind of massive uh, question mark over it. But it's frustrating, I think, from an aviation's perspective, you know, from an airline perspective, where they're trying to ramp back up their flights. They're trying to snag a little bit of this summer holiday traffic to see them through the winter, because winters in Europe are always tough for airlines. And they desperately needed to get some people on holiday. But, you know, the message from the government is clear. You can go on holiday, but expect disruption. You know, if you can't handle two weeks quarantine when you come back, then you better not go at all. And that's quite different to the message we thought they were giving when they kind of opened all these destinations up. So, yeah, frustrating times in the UK anyway. Hmm. So I'm, I'm waiting for your legendary segue, Joe. <laughs> I'm just wondering how to uh, link issues with quarantine in the UK to a peace deal between the UAE and Israel. But uh, I'm just going to pass over to you, I think, Tom. Okay. So, um, yeah, on Thursday, there was really big news, not just in aviation, but sort of for the world in general, because um, obviously President um, Donald Trump announced this peace deal between Israel and the UAE on Twitter. Um, and we were kind of looking at it on Thursday, thinking that probably Emirates or Etihad would be one of the first to um, make uh, use of this, because obviously as part of the deal, um, direct routes are going to open up between uh, Tel Aviv and the UAE, because each will host a um, an embassy in the opposite um, city or country. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting because we were looking, obviously, M uh, Etihad earlier this year flew a couple of flights to Tel Aviv, which were themselves historic because they were the first ever UAE registered aircraft to touch down in um, Israel. 
Um, so yeah, it was quite interesting because it seemed as though it would be one of these really big um, Middle East airlines that would be the first to take advantage of this. But actually, it seems as though it's uh, one of the smaller Israeli airlines that's keen to get on board. Because um, today we reported that Israel's Israel is seeking permission to land in the UAE. Um, and their CEO said that he feels that Dubai would be very popular with tourists. But then there's just kind of one one problem here is that um, to fly from Tel Aviv to either Abu Dhabi or Dubai as the crow flies takes you right over Saudi Arabia, which means that you need overflight rights. Um, which they're probably not going to get. <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one because I feel like um, Emirates or Etihad could probably negotiate them, but... Um, this uh, CEO of Israel was saying that um, no Israeli airline has managed to secure these before um, when they've tried to fly to places like India. Um, and then that creates a bit of an issue for the flight because instead of just flying from A to B, you've got to kind of do a horseshoe around um, the top of a couple of countries. So, I mean, taking, for example, um, Etihad's flight to Tel Aviv, they flew up through the Persian Gulf and then uh, through Kuwait and Iraq. And then when they got up into Turkey, they kind of skirted to the north of the Syrian border before flying south down over the Mediterranean past Cyprus and then sort of tucking into Tel Aviv. It's um, a bit of a roundabout route, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really not ideal, um, especially um, in the age where we're sort of looking at uh, fuel efficiency and uh, cutting emissions. You know, it's it's hard to justify, but I guess at the end of the day, it's still better than. Um, not operating a route not at all. Not having it. Yeah. Well, it's a massive, you know, it's a huge step forward, I think, between the UAE and Israel. Mm. And, uh, you know, a, a positive thing, hopefully, for both countries. But yeah. uh, and I mean, it will be interesting to see how it develops in terms of flight services. Yeah, there's always the chance, I guess, as well, that um, the UAE could actually petition Saudi Arabia on Israel's behalf to get these uh, overflight rights for this specific route, um, because obviously it would be in the UAE's interest as well. Um, yeah, true. But true. obvious. I mean, it's it's a fairly complicated political situation in the Middle East, I'd say, and um, not something that I'm really qualified to talk about in those no. terms. Um, no, sure. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it would be interesting to see where it goes. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the first sort of scheduled passenger service on this route because it seems uh, things are really sort of taking a, a, a go at it now. I mean, um, I was reading just this morning that... Um, telephone connections have been connected between the two uh, countries for the first time ever. So oh, okay. um, <laughs> it, it does seem like work is ongoing there. So I'm keen to see how it pans out. Definitely, definitely mm. interesting stuff. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of your most hated topics, Tom, <laughs> face masks. Don't so, get me uh, started. <laughs> <laughs> I know we kind of skirt around the issue quite a lot, but I thought it was time. Um, you know, I, I think we can confidently say that most airlines, if not all, are now requiring masks to be worn in flight. Um, and some of them are getting a lot tougher with passengers as well. But um, the issue is there's so many different types of masks. I mean, I'm sure you've seen them just going around the supermarket market you know you've got everything from your your homemade cotton one to the disposable paper one to funky fashion ones ones with valves on them so you know I 
thought um, it would be interesting just to have a bit of a conversation about which ones are the best ones to fly with. Well, I mean, uh, clearly my one that's made of recycled aircraft life jacket parts is the best one to fly with for an av geek, but I'll let you tell me <laughs> if that's actually the case. That is pretty cool. And not knowing what it's uh, what that actual fabric is, I'm not sure I'm qualified to say, but uh, <laughs> it does look pretty good, Tom, I have to say. So France actually this week banned disposable masks, which was kind of unexpected. No, no, no. It was um, the, the non-disposable ones I thought they banned. No, it's the surgical disposable okay. ones. They're not allowing people to fly with, which is bizarre because uh, that's one of the ones that is so widely accepted in other places. Yeah. Um, over in the US, there's a number of airlines that have banned the ones with the um, valves on them, the sort of exhaust valves, um, because they've actually been shown to make it worse. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, because the whole point is it's meant to catch what's coming out of your mouth. And if it has a valve to let yeah. stuff out of the mask, it kind of defeats that's the object. It's not really doing it? the job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the general rule is in the US, everybody over the age of two must wear them. And there was kind of, you know, medical exemptions were allowed, but actually loads of airlines have now scrapped these exemptions. So from when I checked, it was Frontier, JetBlue, Southwest, United, American. There's probably others as well. Um, Delta does maintain a medical exemption to wearing masks, but you have to do a, a telephone consultation at the airport. Mm. Um, and they say that you need to arrive an hour before you would normally check in so that's like three hours before your flight at least and even then they can't guarantee the consultation will be done in time so um so yeah there was a really interesting study actually by uh, drake university in north carolina where they tested some of these types of masks mm. to see which ones would actually suit uh, which ones actually do the job better um so obviously we know that you need to cover your nose and mouth um and they tested 14 different types by getting somebody to speak normally while wearing a, a nose and mouth covering. Um, and they kind of looked at the dispersal of droplets from that person's breath as they were just normally breathing and talking. Okay. Um, how, do you, so how do you do that? I'm curious. <laughs> I think it was all with a, a special sort of camera that really slowed it down. Yeah. And then they used an algorithm to almost count the individual droplets. It was uh, quite interesting. There's some interesting photos online of, uh, of how the study was actually done. But uh, but yeah, so out of the 14 types, there was actually one that increased the risk of transmission over wearing nothing at all, which I'll come to in a second. But unsurprisingly, the absolute best mask was the N95 one, um, which is the kind of fitted one that you might wear for um, dust uh, generating operations like cutting wood or whatever. Um, they preferred the one with no valve um, over that one. And the second best one was actually your basic surgical mask, your paper mask that you'd throw away after your use. Um, and then obviously various types of cotton masks came next. Um, two layers were generally better than one. Unpleated was better than pleated. Um, knitted, I don't know why you'd wear a knitted mask, <laughs> but that was no good at all. That, that was uh, quite bad. And uh, the second worst one was the bandana. And I guess that's because that kind of leaves it open at the bottom. It doesn't really fit around your chin, does it? Um, but the absolute worst was the gator type neck fleece. So this is the one you kind of wear as a scarf and then you can pull up over your nose and mouth. Um, and when that's made of a kind of fleece material, it actually had a transmission factor of 110%, which means it's 10% worse than wearing nothing at all. Okay. So don't I wear do, that one. <laughs> I do remember when we visited Spain, um, it was very clear that you had to wear a mask and not... Um, just some sort of scarf or something. And I did have to point that out to a couple of people at one point in our party. So 
it's just <laughs> it's crazy because it's almost as it's almost as difficult um, as knowing all of the different quarantine regulations to knowing all of these different masks regulations because again it just seems to vary um, from destination to destination. Yeah, and even between airlines in the same country, there's no kind of blanket ruling or guidance been issued. So everyone's just kind of taking it upon themselves to do what they think is best. But I think the message is really do check with your airline before you fly, because some of them have some funny little rules and and things that they will accept and won't accept. But on the upside, most of the full service carriers, maybe not so much the low costs, but the full service carriers do carry a spare kind of supply of um, approved masks. So if you do turn up with the wrong thing they've probably got something for you but probably not if you're flying Ryanair <laughs> I mean in the early days I saw that Ryanair did have them but um now a lot more people are flying I'm not sure if that's the case um yeah but I mean what I did find very interesting on the mask topic is when I was speaking to Lufthansa two or three weeks ago they said that they'd faced absolutely no resistance to wearing masks whatsoever um and on the topic of Lufthansa, I wanted oh, yes. to touch on <laughs> what they're doing with their first Airbus A320, um, which was registered as Delta Alpha India Papa Alpha. Um, and they've had this for uh, 30 years, give or take now. Um, and it was retired last year at about 29 and a half years. So it got a good run. Um, it's had a good run with the airline. And now it's um, it's still kind of making money for the airline, even though it's grounded and um, in pieces. And that's because um, it's become part of the airline's upcycling collection, which we kind of touched on briefly last year when they did their first collection. Um, but that was mainly based on fabric. So they were turning like... Um, blankets that like the business class passengers are given into picnic blankets or bags oh, yes. um, and all this but they've kind of gone they a did step- something with their seat fabric as well yeah. didn't they if i remember rightly yeah. yeah like making bags and stuff but they've kind of gone a step further this time and they're actually turning parts of this aircraft into little pieces that you can either use on your day-to-day or place in your home so, I mean, it starts from like the classic airport tag that everyone or uh, aviation tag. A- aviation tag, yeah, yeah. Ev- everyone knows these days um, where they're made <laughs> a little keyring made from the aircraft skin, and I still actually need to get one because um, I have I haven't got one yet, um, which is a bit embarrassing. But I just don't know which to get, you know. But perhaps this <laughs> perhaps this A three twenty is the one for me. Although I'm a bit annoyed that the blue one costs more than the white one, and the blue one's oh. cooler. <laughs> Um, so it's an interesting one but yeah so it's not just skin from this um, 69th manufactured A320 being used Um, they've taken a whole bunch of things Um, you can buy a little um, trophy for your desk that's made of the um, supports for the fuselage I think Um, cool but there's two really cool parts. Um, well, there's lots of cool parts. I mean, there's bits of wing that turn into coffee tables, but there's two really cool parts that I want to talk about. Um, and that is, the first one is made from the aircraft's wing tip. Um, and this will set you back 280 pounds or 300, uh, 2,800 pounds or $3,700 thereabouts. Um, and what you get basically is the wingtip of this aircraft on its side on a stand that you can use as a coffee table. Um, cool. It doesn't look like the most practical design because obviously the wingtip is not flat. It's slightly um, curved around two points. But um, just for the 
look at what I've got in my house factor, um, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, definitely. But I think even cooler than that is um, what they're doing with the exit doors on this thing. Um, so you're going to need a lot of money for this. It's about $7,000 uh, £7, or just over $9,000. Um, but for this money, you get one of the aircraft's doors, um, which is turned on its side and it's mounted on a base and it has a top and it's effectively a freestanding bar. Um, oh, amazing. <laughs> so I, I, I would love to just put that out on my balcony for when people come over for barbecues and stuff. But um, Definitely. Sadly, I... D but I think at that price, I wouldn't want to leave it out in the rain. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, put a cover over it, I guess. But sadly, um, I think also at that price, Lufthansa isn't going to be lending me one to road test. Um, That's a shame. But, but they I really mean, need a nice product review on that, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're listening, Lufthansa, <laughs> and you've got one spare. But um, I mean, it's going to be exciting because um, this is not the end. Lufthansa was very clear about this. Um, and the next A320 to be retired, um, Delta Alpha India Papa Charlie, is also going to get the upcycling um, treatment. And they've sort of told that this time it will be turned into lifestyle products. Um, oh, so I'm quite. Which are what's a lifestyle product? Uh, products to do with lifestyle. <laughs> That's as much as I know. Um, okay. Um, that is as much as I know, but um, I'm. Well, hopefully they'll make something that's a little more affordable because yeah. uh, I love that bar, but there's no way. I mean, I'd, I'd be in yeah. divorce territory there if I spent yeah. that sort of money on a bar. So, yeah. <laughs> but there was a there was a um, like alcohol cabinet as well yeah. that I saw on the on the, the shop one made of the amazing. windows. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah that looks so cool. You can just imagine having like three of those yeah. and then or the bar in front. <laughs> <laughs> it would just look awesome yeah. but uh, lottery win aside I think we're going to have to pass this time Tom it's uh, a shame it is it is yeah so but, Lufthansa when you recycle the next one make something we can actually afford to buy <laughs> but I think you wanted to talk about something that we could afford to buy if we could get there I did. I did. Um, unfortunately, I can't get there because it's in Japan, but uh, I thought our listeners might be interested to hear. So, um, this is a flight that only costs $60 and can take you pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, mm. And it's designed for travellers who are experiencing a severe case of wanderlust, um, which, of course, we all are at the moment. Well, apart from you, Tom, because you're always jetting off somewhere. Um, so, these passengers in Japan, they can enjoy a trip to an exotic location in absolute safety. They can choose to soak up the sun in Hawaii, see the sights in Rome, or take a romantic stroll down the Champs-Élysées in Paris. There's no COVID test required. There's no visa issues. They can leave all their luggage at home because it doesn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> so this airline, it's called First Airlines, and it calls itself the world's first virtual airline. So We've heard of virtual airlines before in the sense that they are um, airlines that don't really exist. They sell tickets on other airlines' metal. Yeah. Um, but this is this is a different sort of virtual airline. It's more virtual in the virtual reality sense of the, the word. So this company, they've painstakingly recreated a first-class and business cabin of a, an Airbus A310. Okay. They've used the, the genuine recliner seats from an old aircraft. Um, and the whole experience is just what you'd expect if you were going on an actual flight. So you board through a proper sort of check-in area, and mm. it's all like you're a, you're a premium passenger. So you get the kind of separate luxury check-in and champagne on arrival, all that sort of thing. 
Um, and there's flight attendants on board as well. And they're, they're not actual qualified flight attendants, if you like, yeah. but they are supervised by real first class flight attendants. Okay. And, and these guys are people that want to be flight attendants. They're almost in training, if you like, but without leaving the ground. And yeah. as a passenger, you get everything you'd expect from your flight. So there's a pre-flight safety demonstration, um, the trolley service to get your drinks and everything and, mm. and all the usual announcements from the rather not their cockpit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, depending on where you're going, you have a, a meal served on board that's specially designed for your destination. So, for example, if you were going to France, you'd probably get like smoked salmon and foie gras. If you were going to Hawaii, you might get soft shell shrimp and scallops and that hmm. sort of thing. You can also go to um, Finland, New Zealand, New York. There's loads of destinations on there. And when it's time to take off, they do a whole takeoff experience with like the use of visuals and audio effects. And there's like screens that go down the side that looks like you're flying past the clouds. It's very cool. Yeah, when you arrive at your destination, you don the latest in virtual reality headsets and hmm. take a proper 360-degree journey around all the major sites in that city. So, I mean, it's not it's not real travel, but it's yeah. pretty damn clever, I think. And for $60, when you get a meal as well, yeah. I'd love to do it personally. Do you know how long these last? It's about 120 minutes okay. all in. So I would imagine it's kind of, Take you know, you've got to do the land. airport bit. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how long the actual tour part takes. But I mean, this is great. I think it's really innovative and really exciting to see. But mm. uh, unfortunately, a bit far away with it just being in Japan. I do hope First Airlines extend their network to uh, maybe somewhere in Europe like next. Frankfurt, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> that would be lovely. Absolutely. Mm. Would you do it, Tom? I would, yeah. I'd give anything a go once. <laughs> twice if you like it eh? yeah. <laughs> so on that note that was just a bit of silliness at the end of the show and I mm. think that's probably about what we've got time for today um, but I do hope you've enjoyed the podcast and as usual we'd welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com for more great content you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media simply search for Simple Flying. if you enjoyed our podcast please do leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player Thank you for listening. Bye.